the understanding for myself was I need to become a successful, quote unquote, influential entrepreneur and business person to actually have the impact that I want, that I'm looking for. Jan Rosner is co-founder and CEO of One Earth Rising, a social impact gaming company with a mission to harvest and harness the power of philanthropy through interactive experiences, providing a playful path to social impact. Jan was born in Germany to an influential and creative father and a loving but disciplinarian mother. As a child, his ambitions were focused on a career in the military. But after 15 years in the Luftwaffe, leading operations in a helicopter squadron, and as a drone pilot in Afghanistan, Jan transitioned to the creative industries, opening his marketing firm, Sagency, in Berlin in 2012. And it was serendipity that led him to New York, where he met his current business partner and pivoted to social impact gaming and launching One Earth Rising. In part one of this two-parter, Jan discusses his childhood, his education, his early influences, and desiring a life of impact. We cover what set him on his path to the military and discuss his experiences of serving in Afghanistan before transitioning through education to political lobbying and finally taking the entrepreneurial path and opening his agency in Berlin. In part two, we take a deep dive into Jan's journey to social impact gaming. He discusses examples of his early successes with animal rights organization PETA, the power of game-based storytelling to educate people on social issues, the philanthropic value of gaming to NGOs, the benefits open to brands and the market potential. Jan also discusses the business model, the evolution of the sector and the impact AI will have on gaming. He also reflects on stoicism, managing fear, failure, exercise, curiosity and serendipity. I hope you're inspired by the integrity, the playful passion and social impact focus of Jan Rosner. Jan, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Mark, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, that's great. All right. Well, if you've listened... Oh, first of all, first of all, we've got to say thanks to Alessandra Armilotta for recommending that we interview you. Yes, Alex. Amazing. That, that fine Italian Englishman. Yeah. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. And great podcast. I love this episode. Yeah, he was good. Right. So, um, as you probably know, we always like to explore our guests' lives before they got into the career that they're in. In your case, social impact gaming, which we will come on and talk about in detail. But we'd like to start by understanding a bit more about your upbringing and where you actually grew up in your childhood. I believe, and I suppose many people listening might have guessed, you're German. Well, that's right. I was born in Frankfurt and I lived the last 10 years before I came here in Berlin. But most of the time between Frankfurt and a couple of other cities in Germany while I was in the military also. Uh, yeah, that was my upbringing from school directly to the military and then further beyond afterwards. So do you think you could talk about your parental support and their guidance and direction, how it affected you and has helped you on your journey? to where you are today and maybe how that impacted your attitude to just social impact in general? Sure. I was very lucky that I was brought up by two very loving parents. I'm a single child, but um, that never really was the feeling that I had. So actually, funny enough, when I was down there in Germany, over there in Germany, that year, last Christmas and New Year's Eve, we just found out or we just figured out that we had the first Christmas together, just my parents and myself, after the first time after I turned one. 
Wow. So my parents would always invite friends. They would have Christmas together with other friends. The door was always open. We had friends over. I could invite my friends. And there was always like a whole group of people sitting at the table. It's very rare that uh, it's only my parents myself. So it always felt like a huge family. So you can see there's a lot of like the social yeah, impact, so to speak, yeah. uh, between people, the human relationship that was taught or it was uh, I was taught very early in my young life. So that was great. My mother, she was now they're both retired, but my mother was a, a warden for the largest women's prison in our region there in Hesse around Frankfurt. Yeah, not the first thing you would think of when you meet her. Very loving person, however, also very strict mm -hmm. and very demanding in like, you know, demeanor or character building and also just normal, you know, be behavior between human beings. So my dad, super loving person, he used to be in PR, now as a journalist. And yeah, I mean, I can only say great human beings. Sounds like a good combination, a yeah. dis disciplinarian mother and yeah. a sort of <laughs> more or less a sounds like more of a creative father. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they played off of each other well. Uh -huh. So, but at the same time, both of them really gave me a lot of freedom to explore myself, my youth, my directions with my friends and so forth. So that was I want to say I was a little bit of a wild child in my past, in my youth, meaning like long parties, long nights. Oh, I, 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 I've got to jump in there, Jan. You know, <laughs> used to be a wild child. <laughs> well, yeah. So I've been, I've, I first met you at a Fourth of July party. Here we go. See, yeah. so your dad is carrying on apparently. Yeah. <laughs> but it's brilliant. I don't know how they did it. They did it really well. They left me uh, kind of like under the impression that I can explore myself. I'm not restricted to things, but I always want. I never wanted to disappoint them. I think they. Kind Kind of like ingrained that in my mm. behavior. I don't know how they did it. You know, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. How I can put this into other people? And it was brilliant. That's interesting. You said you, they gave you that freedom to play, a freedom to sort of explore. How did that manifest itself in terms of where you lived, the environment, the peer group that you grew up around? Well, interestingly enough, now, you know, looking back, we have met each other here in New York, so I'm a very different person now than I was back then. I was more of a follower back then mm -hmm. rather than a leader, and I wanted to belong to a certain group, and I was actually trying to find out what that meant, mm -hmm. what kind of group, what, you know, what's the... I remember I was in the Michael Jackson fan club. Then uh, I went to my first actual concert in my life, which was the Rolling Stones, and then got kicked out of the Michael Jackson fan club because everybody was just... <laughs> Sacrilegious. Exactly. You can't seem to do that. Yeah. Everybody just wanted to know what happened at the Rolling Stones concert. So there was like this back and forth that devastated me because I had this little peer group over there, and then they didn't want to be with me anymore. And so this back and forth, you know, a couple of these breakups in my life happened a couple of times. And that helped me to navigate so my own direction. Mm. So, and where was this? Which city? There was uh, still Frankfurt. There was Frankfurt. elementary school yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. I had my first concert, The Rolling Stones, with ten years old. That was great. That's couldn't hear. Else. I couldn't hear for like, three days afterwards. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a cool thing to be able to say. Your first ever concert is The Stones. Yeah, that was very cool. <laughs> so that environment, I'm trying to understand how your identity sort of evolved, being a single child. I understand that in the environment where the parents were always inviting people over at Christmas time, but did you feel like a single child as you were growing up? Or did was that why you were striving to be part of a group and to develop your identity? 
Yeah, actually, no. So I always felt to be part of a bigger family through that, right? So as if I had brothers and sisters or like, you know, my extended family, my real family, you know, my, my uncles, my or uncle, my aunts and so forth. They are they are very close to me and my cousin and my both cousin, female and male, they feel like sister and brother to me. However, that extended family was friends and family. So that was really what felt made it whole to mm. me. Okay. When did you start to realize the world was bigger than just Frankfurt and Germany? Is there a world beyond Frankfurt and <laughs> Germany? Uh, very early, actually. So my my aunt, I call her my aunt. She's actually the cousin, my, my mom's cousin. She married an American Coast Guard pilot, C-130. And so I got introduced to the military environment very early. actually went to the U.S., to New York, for the first time when I was six years old because he was stationed here, they were stationed here. And uh, so, you know, started traveling very early in my life. My parents also very, you know, lucky me, they were traveling all the time. So we'd go to Spain, to Greece, to Connemara. I spent a good amount of my childhood in Connemara in Brittany, mm-hmm. so Ireland and France. And that whole traveling and being exposed to other cultures was, uh, yeah. What took big... you to the Connemara coast? Oh, my dad, he's just, uh, if he could, he would be Irish. <laughs> really? He's German, but uh-huh. he loves the Irish culture, and he just loves everything Irish. You know, starting at, but with Guinness, going There's to... Nothing with him on that one. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I love it. And going over, you know, fishing. So we had this tradition, my aunt, uh, sorry, my uncle and my dad would take me as a young child to go on fishing trips. When I grew out of that, they took my younger cousin. And so just recently, we had like the four men went on the fishing trip, 10-day fishing trip in the Connemara, mm-hmm. and that was a blast. It's wonderful. It it's is a wonderful. great coastline. Yeah, and, it is. Uh, getting in, yeah, a good lock-in in Galway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but many the of those... oysters are to die oh, for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's that, you know, that opened a lot of the world to me in a very young age. And it really influenced me from all these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. When you said your mom was a disciplinarian and she set those values, what can you give examples of the types of rules and regulations that you she, you live by? Uh, it sounds so harsh, disciplinarian. So she did this in a very loving manner, mm-hmm. yeah. I must say, not to you know throw her under the bus. But she did it perfectly. She, I mean, you know, starting at the simple things of st- sitting up straight while you're at dinner, not mm-hmm. putting your lower arms on the table, just using fork and knife. So these very, very basic rules of engagement when you're ha- dealing with other people and at a dinner table, that was the start point, starting point. But also the the idea of making my own decision i remember decisions i remember very vividly there was this time where you know i was not really sure where i fit in and before i would make a decision i would always look at my friends right what are they doing what are they deciding and there was this moment really where uh, she was asking us like hey guys what do you want for dinner and i was like yeah what do you want for dinner it's like no I asked you, what do you want for dinner? And she asked me directly, and she pointed at me like, uh, okay, I want this. Is this good? Well, if you want it, then that's good. It's your decision. And those were these little things where she guided me through the process of actually also, you know, forming my personality. And my, my dad did too, by the way. I mean, both of them very well. A lot of the people we interview who are on an entrepreneurial journey talk about just some of the entrepreneurial ventures they did and... They seem to be fairly independent, independently minded, free spirited as children. Is there any, was there anything in your childhood that indicated that you would go down this entrepreneurial route? 
Not really, not in the very beginning. My besides of like selling my toys at the at the curb, right? You know, that's what a very common German thing, mm-hmm. I guess, is maybe across the world. I always helped my my godfather. Also, he has a, a, a Greek running a Greek restaurant in Frankfurt, doing you know, selling beer at the fairs and and s- uh, street festivals and so forth. So, but that was about it. So going into the restaurant world, hospitality bartending and so forth. So I think everybody has done that. But the I was not in that mindset yet. And I mean, not clearly, but my past, you know, going to the military, joining the military is also, it's not really like that, what you expect from an entrepreneur. Yeah. So before we move on to your education and your journey to the military, what other early influences were there that you can remember defining moments of your childhood? So I'm funny that you ask. I just had this conversation I think on Wednesday and then again before a week on the weekend with my mom. So there was this one very uh, almost like a traumatizing experience as well, but in a good way. So I had uh, one of my oldest childhood friends. We were hanging out with at their family house, a little bit outside of Frankfurt. And so I used to be very interested in like coding, computers, a little nerdy, but also a smart ass during that time. And I remember that I would sit at the table there and then just talk about stuff. I can't remember what it was. But at one point, the mother of my friend was just like, Jan, stop, stop being a smart ass. And it was so shocking because I didn't realize it, but it was also very apparent that she was right. So I internalized that um, very much, by the way, a quality that my mom taught me to, where every time we would have an argument or so, and she would say like, okay, let me think about this. Let me get back to you, which I loved. She wouldn't try to sell me her point. She would really take the time, think about it, and then come back, maybe not agree, but or, you know, find an agreement through that. So that mother then pointed that out, and that changed something in me where I never wanted to be that person again, that just smart-assed everyone, just like, let me tell you how things are. That's something that I really find, Pauling is a little bit too strong, but I don't like that uh, characteristic Mm -hmm. in people. How old were you when that happened? It must have been like... Six, seven, so really early. Yeah. Yeah. That's really early smart ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, an early smart ass, but quite early to have that sort of conscious sense of understanding who you are and what you didn't want to be at that age. Kudos to her, I guess. This was really a great move. I've totally, I mean, she probably doesn't even remember it. And it really got to me still to this point. It, I remember that moment. On another note, I'm a, I'm a Top Gun generation, so the movie. So that really got to me very early as well. I started doing building models and you know fighter models and so forth. I think to the extent where my parents really got a little bit concerned because everything I was surrounded with was military <laughs> implications. And so they're both like 68th generation uh, hippies and all the concept of war and violence that's not really computing with them. So it was really shocking when I transitioned also into the military. Post the smart-ass seven-year-old, what was school like the for the young Jan? School was, yeah, interesting. I mean, I loved certain topics more on the science side, very much so. Uh, school was, you know, in the young age, I was, like I said, a follower. I wanted to belong to a group. That was in the elementary school environment and then moved over to high school um, in Germany. I was a more private person there, would pull myself a little bit more out, belong to a little sp- specific group not like the high rollers but had a good you know group of followers and and friends then also yeah was interesting one thing that i remember also uh, which tells you a lot about my personality back then was my math and physics teacher so it happened that i had two two years in a row uh grade a 
in the end results in, in physics. And so he came back and he handed me the paper and said like, well, Mr. Rosner, you are like Columbo. One does not see your intelligence. And that was such a shocking, like, whoa, is this an insult or a compliment? I don't know. That was like my behavior also. Mm -hmm. So I would just sit there and sometimes do stupid comments, but do fairly well then in the mm -hmm. academics. Were there any teachers or mentors that had a, an impact on you that you can remember that affected the direction you went in? N not the uh, direction that I went, went into, but there was elementary teacher. She was just amazing. Everybody loved her. And I have to say also, my parents chose very wisely with the elementary school was the first school that integrated all different cultures into one classroom. I think I had like 23 different countries in one classroom of 30. Wow. So from everywhere, Israel, Poland, Russia, US, and so forth, you name it, all different colors of the skin there. And that was fantastic. I mean, that again, contributed for me being very open to culture and cultural experiences mm -hmm. there. On the teacher side later on, there was this one teacher, which you know, I have to, I have to embarrassingly um, uh, admit that I forgot his name. He was just, he was a business person. So he would teach us more the ins and outs of business. And that appealed to me a lot because he was also tough, but fair. Just a cool character mm -hmm. that I liked a lot. So what set you on the path to the military? It seemed that you you studied your degree later after you came out of the military yeah. rather than before. So you go straight from school into the military. Yeah. So what led you down that path? Being exposed to the military in a very early age with through my, you know, quote unquote yeah. uncle. That was something which I found extremely cool. I saw the camaraderie around those men and women and just the impact, so to speak, what they could do with their you know, whatever branch they're in. And so that, that appealed to me, it being together and the strongest pull, the weaker. And, and I wanted to be a part of this community. And I also, you know, it sounds silly, but I was sitting there watching a lot of these bravery movies and, you know, honor and bravery and mm -hmm. things like that that appeal to me a lot. And those are still values that I live my life by. And also, I didn't want to sit on the couch and, and see things happening around the world and just say, oh, that's horrible what's happening in Sudan right now. What's for dinner? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a part of that, of making an impact, for lack of a better word. And I thought that the military would be a good way to do that. No. And uh, so when I signed up actually for the military service, and uh, it was still when we had compulsory service, you were drafted for 10 months, but you could extend that to 23. 24, you would already be like a professional, but 23 is the longest you can do the compulsory service. So when I said, I went in and said, hey, listen, I would love to do that, but with the condition that you sent me somewhere abroad. And so they did. They sent me to Sarajevo when I was 19 years old. And that was a great... Was this great during the Balkan War? It was after the Balkan Sorry. War. I mean, like the hot time, yeah. right? We were still this S4 times mm -hmm. and there was nothing really going on there. But uh, it really taught me a lot. I mean, being a young kid, so to speak, like 19 years old on Sniper Alley, even mm -hmm. though there's no snipers anymore. But, you know, with, with a weapon and in uniform, left side spits at you, the other side cheers. And it's interesting. There's a lot of input that you get as a young man. And so that shaped a lot. So obviously you mentioned you were a Top Gun generation yeah. and wannabe Iceman and... Maverick, that, Maverick. Ma Maverick, sorry. Oh, Maverick, always so Maverick. Okay. Always <laughs> But you wanted to be that wannabe Maverick. Yeah. Is that what set you on the path to being a helicopter pilot? Yeah. So like I said, the, the, the system, how it works in Germany is you first have to become an officer. 
So the process is you go through officer school, right? First officer selection system. So you can't become a pilot without being an officer. And you also have three pillars that you have to select from. So, you know, what's your first choice? What's your second? What's mm-hmm. your third? So for me, it was jets. Jets is Air Force, Luftwaffe. Second one, if that doesn't work, I'm going to fly helicopters in the Army. That was like the main helicopter uh, thing. And if that all doesn't work, then I want to be a SEAL in the Navy. So, you know, if I can't fly, I want to dive. And so the second thing worked. So it's basically after you go through the whole selection system, you also go one week, I think it is, a whole medical screening thing. You meet 24 doctors to check everything. So either you go out there and know you're really healthy or they find what's wrong with you. So what was wrong with me was they diagnosed a uh, dust allergy. So and dust allergy, the reason why they kicked me out of jets is if you breathe 100% oxygen, it's very dry and that can set off an allergy like that. And also, I mean, they have like 4,000 candidates and just pick 20 or so. So they just like, okay, no, no. And then I dropped down one and uh, helicopters don't need oxygen and that was good that's that's how i ended up in the helicopter that's branch. funny the parallels is taking me back to when i was 19 and i applied to be what was called in the uk the fleet air arm to fly fighters and i got taken down to the admiralty interview board oh. and doing all these tests and i was always like, sounds I was, so much better i was in, killer in I, the UK. I, I, this is early computer games and i was mm. spending every penny i earned during the summer playing games and my hand-eye coordination was to die for yeah <laughs> so i cleaned up and everything i did and I, my physical tests were great and then i got to the board and the the six or the the five guys sitting in front of me interviewing me with obviously their stripes and their shoulders and all very serious and i went and uh, decided to, in my infinite wisdom to read them an anti-war poem <laughs> so you can imagine oh, fantastic you, can imagine, went well, you, you can imagine that went down very well and yeah. I got a very polite letter telling me that my talents would probably be best spent elsewhere uh, thanks but no and thanks and wishing me all the best of luck <laughs> in my future career so yeah fantastic but anyway that's a diversion so helicopter pilot that mm. must have been quite an extraordinary experience it was absolutely and the interesting part actually when because you brought that up the selection process you know hand-eye coordination I don't know how it was for you it was here in the, in Germany the task that you get, for example, like fly a helicopter, it's like keep the same height and airspeed, mm-hmm. right? But then it goes very fast into a very complex scenario that you cannot win, that is set up purposely. You cannot win the scenario, but everything you do, you do it twice. So they just want to see progress to see if you make the same mistakes again or what determines your decision-making process. So that was very interesting to see too. And to, yeah, to your question... It was absolutely helicopter flying helicopters is amazing. This whole piece of equipment, piece of technology is incredible. This helicopter, no helicopter really wants to stay in the air, so you have to do a lot to keep it there. And it was interesting because, as you probably know, you have to, you know, all your four extremities, you're doing different things at mm-hmm. the same time, all the time. So that that gets you in the beginning phase when you get your training. And I trained in Alabama uh, at Fort Rucker because the branch of the, of the Luftwaffe, the helicopter branch is so small that we outsourced that. That was interesting and we did, you know, you get your first, you have, you know, one in Put control in they, they the IP instructor pilot hands that over to you, and everything's fine. Just like you know, fly towards the screen there. Okay, perfect. And then he gives you the second one, and then keep the uh, same air height right? and fly towards the screen. Okay, okay, works. And then the third one, and everything goes wrong. It's like you would spin, you would turn your head. It's weird, but it's great when you do it. Then and you know the 
the king class, the master of everything is the hovering process, so hovering in steady in the air. That's quite awesome. And how many years were you flying helicopters for Luftwaffe? I I was in the forces for f- almost 15 years. So I was 15 years. Normally, um, the last two years, I could cut down. I wanted to leave earlier because, I, you know, the Bundeswehr would reduce the forces anyway, so they cut me a deal. So but 15 years, I signed up for 15. They flying, I did about eight years of flying. And then in the later stage of my career, transition to just keeping my license, so the minimum flight, and then uh, three years of drone, reconnaissance drones in Afghanistan. Wow. What was that experience like? Very interesting. So it, it's hard probably to understand. Base but where in Afghanistan? Uh, Mazar Sharif. So yeah. you were in quite a hostile area. Yeah, that was much more hostile than Sarajevo or Kosovo. Yeah. yeah. So the interesting part was the flying the helicopter, obviously, you know, for me, it was always like a flying, driving my motorcycle. It's great. I love it. It's exhilarating. But I don't want to do this all the time. So very fast for me, I was more drawn to be behind the desk and be more strategic than um, flying the, the actual helicopter from A to B. So we did also cool stuff in the military, like flying night vision goggles uh, over the sea in 10 foot above the sea level and then fast roping a Navy SEAL on the, on the vessel for training purposes. Mm-hmm. So that's cool, but that's probably like 0.5% of what you do. And besides that, you're flying from A to B, from B to A. It's not really, it's like, you know, you feel when you when you figured it all out, you feel like a like a truck driver. Not anything bad about truck drivers, but it was not what I wanted to be. And so... What we did then, the transition, the flying part was great when it was great. Transitioning to drones, the flying part was the worst. I mean, you're sitting in a container and you're basically just typing commands into a keyboard and you have a trackball. That's it. Germany, the rules require you to have an active license. So that's why I take pilots. But that's only to just coordinate the airspace and so forth and communicate with them over radio. The actual camera operator, they, they did a greater job. But the actual missions, what we did, that was great. We would fly with special forces. We would see much more so than the average. you were watching when uh, active on-the-ground missions were in play. Yeah, we would prepare them. We would watch while they happen. And we would, you know, post-brief them, so to speak. That must have been fascinating. Yeah. That's why, I mean, we provided, from my perspective, I provided much more service to my comrades on the ground through the drones than I did back before that. It's a little bit of a generalization, but with a helicopter. It must have been quite difficult when you were witnessing firefights and seeing people being injured, killed, and having to witness that. and Or even see when you're in reconnaissance and looking at maybe hostiles escaping. Yeah, the Bundeswehr did a quite good job of addressing these issues head on. Anytime anything would happen, we would always be requested and quiet to see a psychiatrist afterwards. Just just to talk about it, right? Not that it would imply that you had any problems, but I think that really also made it easier because you didn't have to ask for it. You would just go. And you can talk about anything and everything. And they would keep, I think it was like five years, they keep the record of that in a vault somewhere. And if anything happens, if anything PTSD-wise comes to, you know, grows or shows, they would pull these records and you would have some validation that that actually could be tracked back to that experience. And how long were you in Afghanistan? I was five times. I had five deployments there all around three to three and a half to four months. Yeah. So from 2010 to 2013. All right. 
how did you then transition to or making a decision to go into do a, a degree in business communications and then end up opening an agency of all things? Mm. That seems that, like a, a an unusual pivot. So that actually happened very early on in my career in the military that I that my mindset shifted. So as I said earlier, my idea was that I joined the military to have an impact, to change lives, to really help them to grow and or not to grow, but to have an impact on the situation. Very clearly, very early on, I realized that this is not the case. I have no impact. And sometimes the things we were doing were just silly. I don't know how to describe this differently than there was no need for us to be there, right? So oftentimes in the military and probably in many op uh, public offices, you feel like, oh, you're just there to be there. And you're just like breathing air away from others. That was my experience at least. And so I very early on when I was deployed to Kosovo after my first, that was my first deployment after becoming a, a helicopter pilot, I really didn't see any impact that we did there, right? Maybe I was just oblivious to it or ignorant. I just, it wasn't for me. So I really decided at this point then very early on to say, okay, this was not the right decision. I mean, you know, like they say, this experience made me the man I am today. So I don't really regret anything. But so that mindset set shifted and I started to think about, okay, what do I do? Do want to do differently or afterwards? In the very early beginnings in the military, if you get approved to become a pilot, that's the only officer direction you can go into without needing to have a degree. The degree in the military is really just for yourself. So when you leave, that you have something. Because the majority, you know, it's nothing that you can use. But for the, the, the pilots, you have such a great education there already. That's valid enough. If you want to, you can still get your degree. But I was so eager to get going. And the thought of having another three and a half years sitting at the bench and studying, that was not for me. So I skipped that. Then, you know realizing I don't want to be here and that uh, whole flying career you know for any search and rescue operation or something is not for me either so we decided to do my long uh, distance learning and to get my degree now so I did a bachelor in uh, international business communication and that was really fun so I mean it was a weird situation I would sit in Afghanistan doing my breaks and just read and do my courses and do some online courses sometimes I had to go back and then you know be there in person so that was quite uh, tasking also sometimes but it was great it was great it taught me a lot I would have expected to you would have expected someone like with your experience to enter into a more traditional, organizational structure akin to the military like banking mm. but you went into the creative fields mm. and entrepreneurial path opening mm. an agency in Berlin explain <laughs> <laughs> so like I said earlier the idea or I felt much more comfortable already at the desk right sounds horrible but uh, kind of like strategically being creative there was another frustration of mine as I was unable to use any creative input of mine in that military corset because nobody is really interested in like saving money and anything and the money comes anyway so if there's more work implied to change a structure or change a kind of like a workflow then everyone Ugh, let's just leave it right you know it's, i know it sucks but hey just leave it so it was very frustrating from that perspective so i already knew that there were things that i wanted to do that didn't comply with that military structure when i actually was about to leave the biggest question was i mean i set myself up on this path also to fly drones because i wanted to kind of like you know get a bigger array of skills to go out there and then apply for a job and the actual logical transition would have been 
to go to EADS and big drone companies yeah. and really advise them or build or you know project manage and so forth. So that was actually the initial goal. And then I sat there and th- thought, okay, I can only I can either do that and just find myself in another military structure somewhat and or do something else and just do think about what I like too. So, and I have to say also to my, my on my journey to finding that solution for myself to make an impact. You know what I thought it would be the military. I transitioned also into kind of like the higher ranks in politics and became an advisor to the uh, security advisor of the German government, so the the reigning party, so to speak, at this time. And so that allowed me to write papers about the domestic and international use of drones and how, you know, like giving insights from all the learnings in Afghanistan and so forth, under the being under the impression that, you know, working in politics, you can really uh, make a change and impact. So everything was drive. You were con- constantly striving to have some form of impact and trying to find your path to impact. Yeah, I, I don't think I did know that that much as I know it today. Subconscious. But it, like, yeah, subconsciously yeah. it always led me on this path. So what I saw, and there was actually a, um, a documentary I learned, I saw about this Swiss lobbyist. He nailed it. He said, you know, he was at the, at the crossway of deciding, do I want to be a puppeteer or do I want to be the puppet? And And he decided to be the puppeteer, the lobbyist. So it was very telling. And when I was there and in politics and I saw it li- life in color, oh, my God, this is horrific. So my understanding and, you know, sorry, very apocalyptic here. But the understanding for myself was I need to become a successful, quote unquote, Im- influential entrepreneur and business person to actually have the impact that I want, that I'm looking for. And my path to marketing, I mean, part of my international business communication BA was also marketing. But um, that was the path where I thought like, okay, I love communicating with people. I'm a social person. And I just love these ideas, creating these ideas, helping people to voice their ideas. And I thought also with marketing, I get in front of a lot of people. So that was the logical transition for myself to then start a marketing firm using social media actually back then. That's a big step. I mean, I've created an agency, but I've got the background of working in a large agency. <laughs> so you have that confidence. Yeah. It must have taken considerable bolts to actually <laughs> take that step and yeah. create something without having any credentials in that area. Yeah, maybe. I mean, when you fly a helicopter and go into these different zones, I had much more much more respect for my comrade soldiers that would even be on the ground and do all the stuff that they did than, you know, starting an agency. I mean, you know, to, to your point, and I, well, I don't want to now, you know, looking back, knowing how much work that is yeah. and how many things can go wrong, there was like a very silly thought. But I didn't really th- thought thought a lot about it in regards to oh that's that's a big step no mm. it's just like try it and if it doesn't work I do something else that I think was the initial thought. Okay, Jan, I think we'll leave part one there. We'll come back in part two. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, that's the end of part one. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative and seek out serendipity. See you next time.